I'd like to introduce tonight's guest, Jorge Castaneda. Jorge Castaneda was born and raised in Mexico City. He received his BA from Princeton University and his PhD from the University of Paris. He has been a professor of political science at the National Autonomous University of Mexico, a senior associate of the Carnegie Institute for International Peace in Washington, DC, and a visiting professor at Princeton University and the University of California, Berkeley. He was Mexico's foreign minister from 2000 to 2003, and is now Global Distinguished Professor of Politics and Latin American Studies at New York University. He is a member of the Board of Human Rights Watch and lives in New York and Mexico City. Please give a very, very warm welcome to Jorge Castaneda. Thank you. Thank you, Dulce. Thank you all for uh, joining us on a Friday night, especially with the imminent threat of a shutdown of the freeway, which sounds like a terrible thing to happen. I would be scared to death, but I suppose this happens all the time. In Mexico, we don't get scared about these things because they're always closed. So <laughs> it really is not, nothing for us to get terribly upset about. What I'd like to do tonight very briefly, so we have as much time as possible to go into a discussion of these ideas or any other issues or ideas having to do with the subject matter that you would like, is to briefly summarize what the purpose and the content of this book is, uh, and then be able perhaps to give you a few of examples of the things I try and the points I try to make in this book. The first point is why uh, I wrote this book and why it appears simultaneously in Spanish and in English, in Mexico and in the United States. Um, is basically because I became increasingly dissatisfied with the answers that we in Mexico, but Americans also, give to the questions we all ask ourselves about uh, my country. Why, if we know what has to be done, do we not do it? Why, um, if we have done so much and achieved so much, particularly the last 15 or 20 years, are we unable to do the last leg, the last mile, and finally consolidate Mexico as a prosperous, democratic, middle-class society uh, with less poverty, less inequality. We know more or less what has to be done, so why doesn't it happen? Well, I became increasingly dissatisfied with the answers which we have all been providing uh, because, particularly silly answer, the Americans don't let us, maybe. Why don't they let us, or why do we care? Uh, secondly, well, why can't we ponernos de acuerdo? Why can't we agree among ourselves what to do? That's why. Well, it's, it's true, but uh, that begs the question why we can't agree with about, among ourselves what to do. Well, the Mexican political elite lacks the political will to do what has to be done. True, but why does it lack the political will? And so on and so forth. So I try to go a little deeper than that and to uh, become part, modestly, much more uh, <clears throat> insignificant way, of a long Mexican tradition of sort of cultural soul-searching introspection, that there is something deeper, there is something more in the Mexican soul that really is where the answer lies to these questions. And so I decided to try and do, to use three sources of inspiration or information in order to come up with better answers to these questions. 
The first one is what I call what the classics wrote. All of these people, whether they're Mexican or American or French or British or what have you, who over the last hundred years more or less, let's say from John Reed onward, have been asking themselves this question, who are these guys? You remember the old scene from Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid when they finally, when they're being followed by Lord Baltimore some across some godforsaken place in Colorado before they go to another godforsaken place in Bolivia, and they keep asking each other, who are these guys? All right, well, this is a question people have been asking about Mexico for 100 years. I think probably John Reed was the first one. It's a long tradition of Mexican thinkers from Manuel Gamio, Samuel Ramos, in the early part of the century, obviously Octavio Paz later on, people like Jorge Portilla, like Santiago Ramirez, like Emilio Uranga, more modern thinkers like Roger Bartra, a few others, but also Americans like, of course, Oscar Lewis, the great anthropologist who wrote, I actually talk about the children of Sanchez, but not his book, friends of mine who were all called Sanchez and who were children, because that's when I knew them. So they were the children of Sanchez too. A lot of children of Sanchez in Mexico. Uh, but also writers like D.H. Lawrence, like Malcolm Lowry, like uh, Jean Leclésio more recently. Uh, we are an introspective nation and we are also uh, the subject of inquiry and research by others. So first, what did the classics say? And secondly, what do we know today about Mexico, Mexican attitudes, beliefs, habits, customs, character that we didn't really know or that they didn't really know because the information was not there. We didn't have the polls, the research, the studies, the market studies, the market surveys, etc. that we have today. Since we didn't have elections before, well, we didn't have electoral polls before. Why do you want to poll? Why do you want to know who's going to win if you already know who's going to win before the election? It's a stupid waste of money. And, and we waste money, but not stupidly. Um, so we have all this enormous amount of information available to us today, which we didn't have, or the classics didn't have 30, 40, 50, or 100 years ago. And thirdly, my own experience, which is not especially uh, interesting or noteworthy, except for a certain proximity and distance simultaneously. There are some people, I'm sure, who know Mexico much better than I do, and there are some people who have a greater distance from Mexico while knowing it well than I do. But I think I have a certain specialness in being at the same time close and distant. And this has been my lifetime so far, and probably will be for the few years left, and consequently I think there's a certain way of looking at the country that is somewhat different, and that's what I decided to try and do. What I did was to set up first eight chapters, four pairs of chapters, two by two, and one final one, which I'll talk about in a second, where I contrast what I consider to be the four most important national character traits of the Mexican people today and for over the past four or 500 years with the material reality of Mexico today in four different aspects. And I basically try to show that the two things do not go together anymore that the national character traits that allowed us to build a nation where there was none. The existence of a Mexican nation is a recent thing. A uh, hundred years ago, we didn't have one. 
We celebrated our 200th anniversary of independence, but all we had was independence. We didn't have a country, we didn't have a nation, we didn't have zip most of the 19th century. And it's only towards the 20s or 30s of last century that something like a Mexican nation began to emerge. And it took even then a long time to keep building it. And one of the reasons we were successful in building a nation where there was no, not one were these traits of character which helped us do so. But today they clash dramatically with the nation we built thanks to those character traits that allowed us to build it. The first one is Mexico's radical extreme individualism, which may be a bit counterintuitive if you remember what you've seen in the murals and what you've read and you've seen in the movies and stuff of Mexico as a collective people, a people where everything is done together. No, we do nothing together. You cannot find two Mexicans who will cooperate on anything. <laughs> Zip, nothing, absolutely nothing. Mexicans are far more individualistic and far less associative, collective than Americans certainly, but than most Latin Americans also. And this is not just because the classics say so, but because we have comparative figures that make this very clear. We have fewer Mexicans participating in labor unions, elections, philanthropy, associations, any kind of collective grouping, including religion. Mexico may be a very religious Catholic country, but it is an individual Catholic country. Mexicans are incredibly individualistic in their religiosity. You cannot find Mexicans who will do anything together. You can't find Mexicans who will live together. If you overfly a city like Sao Paulo or Buenos Aires, the first thing you will see, or a friend from Montevideo has to overfly Buenos Aires to get to Montevideo because there's no other way to get there. They don't have their own airports and stuff in Uruguay. <laughs> you see high rises forever. Expensive high rises, middle class high rises, cheap and horrible high rises. You see all sorts of high rises, but that's what you see. In Mexico City, you see none of this. You see miles and miles and miles of horizontal housing. Mexicans do not like to live in vertical housing, period. Why? Well, first of all, because it's not mine. This is a piece of air, which is obviously not mine. The only thing that's mine is a house, my house. But secondly, I don't like this nonsense of having to share the elevator, the garbage chute, the parking space, the atrium, anything with anybody else. It's not mi casa es su casa, no. Mi casa es mi casa. Okay, none of this nonsense. And you can see it in the architecture of the cities, of all of the cities. And this is even more true today. In the last 10 years, We've had an incredible housing boom in Mexico. More than five million families, mainly low-income families, have been able to purchase a home. Small, not great, what have you. No trees, We're, we don't like trees in Mexico. But a home, five million. More than 80% are horizontal. Only 20% are vertical. But this, which is important, can be accompanied by something which is not important, or actually it is, 
but not as significant, which is the national tragedy we live in Mexico every four years when the soccer World Cup takes place. <laughs> and this is something which plunges us, plunges us into deep depression every four years. And rightly so, we should be depressed about it, and we are. Because we simply are terrible at any collective sport. We are incapable of doing anything together. In individual sports, we're not that bad. We've had outstanding tennis players, boxers, golfers, sprinters, uh, some um, walkers, whatever they're called, uh, caminata, uh, whatever. Um, we have had some people, good swimmers. Of course, we have fantastic bullfighters, which is an individual sport par excellence, but we are disastrous at collective sports. We have won 54 medals in the Olympic Games since 1900. 47 of them in individual sports, seven in collective. We're so lousy at this that even when we come up with fantastic soccer stars like Hugo Sanchez 20 years ago or Chicharito Hernandez now, whenever we take them out of their team or Rafa Marquez with Barcelona, we take them out of their European team and bring them home to the national team, they're a disaster. <laughs> they fail miserably, although they are great players. I contrast this with the middle class society that Mexico has become, which gets me into a lot of trouble with many of my friends in Mexico who continue to think that Mexico is a country, uh, an impoverished country, where the huge majority of the population is poor, we have a couple of rich people like Slim and his cousin, and that's it. <laughs> Well, it's, that's simply not true. That is not the country we have. We now have a country that has a middle class, roughly 60% of the population, by any definition of the words you would like to use, whether it's housing, whether it's discretional income, whether it's educational levels, whether it's universal health care, whether it's uh, the type of job they have, the type of income they have, etc. You can't have that kind of individualism and the middle-class society simultaneously. It doesn't work. And I contrast these two things, and now I go on doing this through the successive chapters. I'll talk about one other clash and then about the concluding chapter so we have more time for questions. A second national characteristic which we have is that we cannot stand, we thoroughly dislike and reject conflict, contradiction, confrontation, and competition. We don't like this stuff. From people who leave their job and you ask them why, es que me habló golpeado. <laughs> well, okay, so te habló, she wasn't nice to you or your boss wasn't nice to you, that's fine. And you resigned, that's good too. Did you get your severance pay? Did you take your things? What no, me fui. <laughs> ¿Y por qué te fuiste? Porque me habló golpeado. And this goes on and on and on in every, in every area of Mexican life. In politics, in family affairs, in schools, um, in business, in academia. Conflict and contradiction. The fact of people confronting each other over issues and then either agreeing or not agreeing and some guys winning and some guys losing does not exist. 
and this which made sense for four or 500 years because it was a way of avoiding conflicts that you were bound to lose anyway. It wasn't a stupid attitude, it was a rational attitude. If you're gonna lose anyway, why fight over it? Let it go. It made a lot of sense. It doesn't make sense anymore when, for example, you have a representative democracy. And the purpose of having that is having winners and losers. Not always the same winners and not always the same losers. They changed, or they're supposed to. But at least you have winners and you have losers. We don't like the idea in Mexico of winners and losers. We don't, we don't think highly of uh, Charlie Sheen, winning, 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 no. <laughs> we don't like that. We don't want confrontation. But this doesn't work anymore. It doesn't work in politics, which is why the country's paralyzed, because we don't want to bring things to uh, closure. And it doesn't work in the economy because we have an open economy. And so we end up with this ridiculous situation, which comes from the lack of competition, that we have in a country which is still not a wealthy country, the wealthiest man in the world. But he's not just the wealthiest man in the world. He is a sp an especially wealthy, wealthiest man in the world. <laughs> a hundred years ago, when uh, uh, President Roosevelt <clears throat> broke up Standard Oil, exactly a hundred years ago, um, John D. Rockefeller was the world's wealthiest individual, and actually the wealthiest individual in the history of mankind to the extent that we can measure what, how rich the pharaohs were or whatever. He, his net worth was roughly equal to 2% of US GDP of the time. Uh, Carlos Slim's net worth today is roughly equal to 7% of Mexican GDP today. So in relative terms, he's three times wealthier than John D. Rockefeller was before Standard Oil was broken up. But he also has a greater net worth than the next 20 Mexican magnates altogether. Put them all together, he still got more. It's as if Buffett had more than all the following guys, Gates, the Waltons, Burkle, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is the kind of individualism and the kind of what, what non-competition brings you. Now, what kind of competition do we like? Well, I picked up a story once from the New York Times, which made a point that we all in Mexico know, but we don't necessarily look at it the way the Times did. We said, the Times article began by saying, if there were to be a Guinness book of world records of the country most obsessed with being in the Guinness Book of World Records, it would be Mexico. <laughs> and then, of course, they gave some examples, and I started thinking about this, and of course, um, it's obvious. We have the world, records we have, I mean, the world's tallest artificial Christmas tree. <laughs> the world's largest ice skating rink the world's largest taco and tamal, obviously, I mean, <laughs> logically enough, the largest number of people simultaneously kissing each other in the same public space. <laughs> and most importantly, because this is, especially in California, this is very important, um, just after Michael Jackson died, 
the largest number of people coming together and all dancing thriller at the same time. <laughs> These are all Mexican records in the Guinness Book of World Records. So then I asked myself, well, why? And I began to read what people have been saying about this. And one Mexican political scientist discovered the reason, very intelligent and actually very obvious when you think about it, a guy called name of Carlos Elizondo. This is the competition we like, competition without competitors. <laughs> because there is no other bunch of nuts in the world who are gonna try to cook a bigger taco. It's not going to happen. No one else wants to have a bigger skating rink. I mean, not even, not even in Finland or places like that. They have lakes for that there. They don't need to build them. The kind of competition we like is competition without competitors, where by definition you always win because you're not competing with anybody. There's nobody out there against in front of you. Another obvious example is what many of us who grew up in Mexico remember very well as children, what we call in, in Mexico los concursos de oratoria, oratory competition. In the United States, in Britain, and in France, and other places, you have debating clubs and contests. Two teams or two individuals debate one against the other, and one wins and the other loses. In Mexico, we have concursos de oratoria. Each kid sounds off on his own, <laughs> alone. And one after another, 10, 15, 20 kids, and then the teacher decides who uh, was the best speaker. But there's no confrontation. There's no debate. There's no dialectic. It's each one on the own. Well, this doesn't work anymore in a market economy and a representative democracy. And we could go on like this with the other two pairs of chapters regarding the fear of the foreign and the obsession with the past in a country which is today one of the most open economies and one of the most open societies in the world. It doesn't make a whole lot of sense to have such a fear of everything that is alien or foreign as we do in Mexico if we have more Americans living in Mexico than in any other country in the world and we have a larger share of our population living abroad than any other country in the world with the exception of El Salvador and Ecuador. One out of every nine Mexicans lives in the United States. Uh, you may have noticed them, by the way. <laughs> you, can't be, you can't have that kind of a closed mind in society if you are such an open country. If you're a closed country, you can. It's not, it's not a real problem. What you can't do is be that kind of country and at the same time have this obsession with the past, with being a victim, with fear of the foreign, and at the same time be as globalized and as open and as internationalized as we are. So that's another pair of chapters that I try to come together with. And the last one has to do with the question of the law. For very good reasons in Mexico, we don't like laws. We think laws are a waste of time, a, a useless uh, nuisance uh, to everyday life. But this is not new, this has nothing to do, we were talking about it with Bill Whitaker a little while, little while ago, this has nothing to do with corruption from the drug wars or from, this goes back to even before the conquest, to the Spanish rules from Castilla, Aragon, Navarra, 
se obedece pero no se cumple which was a rule under the Spanish monarchy, a sort of a right of last, re, of last resort, where before a sentence was executed, you had a chance to ask the king to review it. And then it became the accommodation between the crown and the viceroys in New Spain, because of the distance and the time involved and the difficulties of actually running the place. Everybody wanted to make believe that the crown ran New Spain, and the viceroys wanted to make believe that they really did what the crown said, but at the same time, everybody knew that the crown ran nothing and the viceroys paid no attention. And this was summarized in this notion, se obedece pero no se cumple. We obey, but we do not comply. And this is how the law was born in Mexico. And it went on this way throughout the colonial period, then in the 19th century with the constitutions we had, which had nothing, which were copied from the US Constitution, had nothing to do with Mexican social, economic, political reality. And then with the law today. And I contrast this with the need we have in Mexico more than ever to establish the rule of law, which we don't have. Well, you can't have a modern democracy, a middle-class society, open to the rest of the world that wants foreign investment, wants tourism, wants security for its people, wants peace and quiet without the rule of law. But the, prob the absence of the rule of law is not in the laws and it's not in the institutions, it's in el chip mexicano. It's in our mind and that, if we don't change that, we will change nothing. I conclude all of this idle speculation with a chapter on of, of hope and optimism, which is a bit far-fetched, but I think makes a little bit of sense. I say, I ask myself, is there any way that any proof or any evidence that we can change the Mexican national character? Or is this something set in stone which will never change? And the answer I try to give is, well, we don't know, but we have a pre Petri dish real-time laboratory experiment going on. And we can now look at it and see what happens. And who are these people? Well, obviously, they're Mexicans in the United States. Recently arrived Mexicans, the last 10 or 15 years. About 80% of the Mexican nationals, the 12 million Mexican nationals in the US today, have arrived over the last 15 to 20 years. They're basically recently arrived. Legal, not legal, is from this point of view irrelevant. We, and we now know more about them, which we didn't know before. Very distinguished American and Mexican scholars had studied Mexican migrants in Mexico before they left. Who are they, where do they come from, why did they leave, what do they want, what were they looking for, blah, blah, blah. But we didn't know a lot of things, and we still don't know a lot of things, about Mexicans here. But we know more than we used to know. And we know two or three things. We know, for example, that they are far more prone to collective action and associative practices than in Mexico. They say so, they trust people more, they work together more with people, with neighbors, friends, colleagues, what have you. We were just talking about the Mexican soccer leagues here, which are soccer um, teams like in Europe and like in South America, not like in Mexico. In Mexico, soccer teams are equipos. 
They play, and that's it. They have porras, maybe, cheerleaders, but that's it. In Uruguay, in Argentina, in Brazil, England and Spain, there are clubes with members, children, schools, other sports, etc. Mexico, for practical purposes, doesn't exist. The soccer leagues here, friend was saying, of Mexicans are much more associative. They begin to do things together. The clubes de oriundos, with all the difficulties we know of creating them. Mexicans in the United States are more participatory, participatory more associative, more collective. Secondly, they, strangely enough, not only respect the law more out of convenience, obviously, they're very bright, but it begins to become a habit. We all know the anecdote, or we should. A Mexican migrant about to cross the border through desert, the Sonora Desert and Sasabe. Uh, sorry, Mariani, you heard the joke this morning. You got to hear it again. It's a lousy joke, but too bad. That's life. You shouldn't come twice to the same <laughs> event. Before he goes off into the desert, he eats his gancito marinela, which is this disgusting junk food that Mexican children and everybody eats, which is terrible for your health and terrible for everything. And he throws the wrapper out in the desert, and of course, by the end of the day, there's millions of wrappers and wrappings in the desert. Crosses the border, gets into the United States, gets to Phoenix, he's home free, buys himself the same gancito marinela, because it's also done made in the United States by Bimbo, which owns all the bakeries in the United States. And he eats the same disgusting gancito, and he throws the wrapper into a waste paper can. <laughs> Why? Well, because he knows exactly what he's doing. It's impressionistic and meaningless, because he knows that an American is fine for littering, and he pays a $50 fine, okay, too bad. The fine for the Mexican is between five dollars and $10,000. Why? Because he gets deported, and he's got to pay the pollero another 5000 bucks to come back. <laughs> it's, it's kind of expensive for, for littering. Okay. But this becomes a habit. And we have in the polls clear evidence that Mexicans trust the police in the United States, trust the authorities, despite the racism, despite the exploitation, despite the brutality and the excesses, undoubtable excesses of the US police against migrants, against foreigners, against Latinos, they trust the police much more than they do in Mexico. And they're right, by the way. And this begins to change. Mexicans do change in the United States. But most importantly, Mexican women in the United States change. They change dramatically. Whether this will ever have an impact on Mexican society, I have no idea. But I do know they can change because they are changing, they have changed. Mexican women here are a different breed from Mexican women in Mexico for two or three very simple reasons. The first one, of course, is that they are free riders. The minute they get here, they immediately profit, benefit from the immense achievements and conquests and progress that American women have obtained over the last 30 or 40 years without they, the Mexican women, having done a whole lot to have that and certainly without having achieved it in Mexico. But it extends to everybody. Secondly, they go through an incredible transformational experience here because they increasingly come at the same numbers as men and they come alone, 
without the boyfriend, without the husband, without the father, without the brother, on their own, they pay their own pollero, they take on their own debt, it's like a student loan, same thing, same, <laughs> same, same principle. They take on their student loan, they pay, and they get their job, and they live on their own, y no le, dan, no le rinden cuentas a nadie. They have, are accountable to nobody. They do whatever the hell they want. They want to go out dancing Saturday night, they do. They don't, they stay home. They leave the kids in school until four o'clock in the afternoon. They don't have to go pick them up at noon because schools in the United States last until the afternoon. Uh, and if they have a problem, they will call CBP or ICE and have the bullying, wife-beating, husband, boyfriend, whatever, thrown out of the country. Most of the time, they'll do it intelligently. If they're illegal, they won't make the call themselves. They'll find a legal comadre to do it with them, for them. <laughs> Sometimes they make a mistake. They told me at the LA Times today that there's this whole scandal recently about a woman who was beaten by the husband or novio or whatever, and she finally reported him, and of course they threw him out, but of course they want to throw her out too because she has no papers. Uh, she actually didn't go about it the right way. She should have thought it through more carefully. But most Mexican women do. So that transformational experience is fantastic. I'm not sure it can have a lot of impact in Mexico. I don't know. But I do know that it makes me hopeful that Mexicans can change. We can change. We don't have to continue being the way we were, which was great while it lasted, but doesn't work anymore. I think we have reasons for hoping that this can change, and if uh, this book is of any use, it will contribute to that. Thank you very much. Hi, my name is Kathy. Can you talk about the violence in Mexico now? And also, I heard you speak one day about possibly running for president in Mexico, if you could run as an independent. Well, uh, two, two uh, unrelated questions, but I'll try and <laughs> address both of them. Uh, I go into the violence issue a little bit in the book because one of the myths that is recurrently stated about Mexico is that we are a very violent country and that the violence that the country is undergoing today, while especially gory and bloody and terrible, is really part of a tradition. It's not entirely true. And I go into three examples, and I'll just talk about that and then a second about the drug stuff. Um, we talk about the famous black legend of the decimation of the indigenous population, the genocide, which resulted from the Spanish conquest in 1521, which by 1570-something had left only maybe one-tenth of the population that existed when the Spanish arrived, and that this was the result of genocide. It's known as the black legend, la leyenda negra. Well, it turns out that most of those people did die, probably not as many, because we don't know what the baseline really was. It's not that you know we had the US Census Bureau going out and counting how many Aztecs there were. Um, <laughs> but what we do know is that the death, the massive uh, deaths that did occur, occurred essentially for biological reasons. It was the disease that the Spanish brought with them that decimated the population not the violence of the conquest. 
Now, unless you think that someone who is spiritually defeated is more prone to die of smallpox, and you, there, there's a case to be made for that. I don't happen to subscribe to it, but there are reasonable people who do. But unless you believe that, you have to accept that, yes, a lot of people died, but it was not a result of violence. It was a result of the conquest, but the biological conquest of an extremely indefensible and isolated people who had no defenses against any form of fire, foreign disease. Next, the revolution. Fast forward 400 years. A million people died during the revolution between 1910 and 1920. Every Mexican says this and repeats it endlessly. Turns out, first of all, far fewer people died during those 10 years, probably around six to 700,000 except that around 90% of those died of the Spanish flu in 1918, along with another 30 million people all over the world. If Porfirio Diaz had not insisted on not allowing Bernardo Reyes to be his vice presidential candidate and had not imposed Ramon Corral, and there had been no Mexican revolution, those 600,000 people would have died anyway, the same way they died here and all over Europe because of the Spanish influence of 1918. The final example, Tlatelolco, the mass student massacre of 1968. Everybody has heard about it, remembers it, or studied it. Oriana Falacci lying, ruins of the sculpture of the three, uh, square of the three cultures. 600 students massacred by the army. 40 years, 45 years later nearly, we only have 68 names. Now, that has two possible explanations. There were only 68 people killed, or the other 500 are still too scared, their families, to say anything. Now, why they would be too scared nearly half a century later with successive governments that have established truth, truth commissions, the opposition which has established truth commissions, the international community that has established truth commissions, what happened? There weren't 600 people massacred. It never happened there were 50, 60 students who were killed, which is terrible and should be condemned and which is a, a terrible moment of Mexican, modern Mexican history. But that's what happened. The violence of the past is not something that is true. It's part of the myths we have invented in Mexico which have a political purpose. Where are we today on the violence? Well, President Calderón has, in a way, repeated the story of Mexican violence. When he declares his war on drugs in December of 2006, one of the justifications he uses for it is that violence in Mexico had reached intolerable levels and something had to be done about it, and what had to be done about it was to take on the cartels. The problem is that violence had been falling in Mexico for the previous 20 years and we had reached a level of homicides per 100,000 inhabitants comparable to places like Chile, like Costa Rica, like Uruguay, and way below Central America, Brazil, Colombia, Venezuela, etc. Mexico today has become a violent country again, I think, because of President Calderón's war. There are some people in Mexico who believe that that's a price worth paying. And there are some people like myself who think it is not a price worth paying. But Mexico was not a violent country in 2006. 
would I run for president if they changed the law? It's a moot question because they're not going to change the law. And so I don't have to answer hypothetical questions. And I don't. <laughs> no, I, w I think somebody should run. And I would be one of those who would be willing to do so. If, but they won't change it. I think it's a pity. And I think uh, this notion that we have to wait another six years for this to happen is ridiculous. But that's where we are. I heard an economist talk about... Uh the effects of NAFTA, and he thought they were terrible, but especially in the field of agriculture. Uh, and I was wondering what you thought of the effects of NAFTA on both those things. This is one of uh, sort of boilerplate stances which have some grounds to them, but not a whole lot. Mexican agri agriculture, with a few exceptions of a few regions, has been a disaster for many, many, many years. It has nothing to do with NAFTA. It's a disaster for many reasons. One of them is that the land in Mexico is no good. It's, it's barren land. If you don't have uh, rain, uh, irrigated land in Mexico, you have only one crop per year. Most of the land is mountainous. Uh, it's sandy. It's, the land is really lousy. So no matter how much we did, we would never be really an agricultural um, powerhouse. Secondly, the land tenure system we have is highly individualistic, satisfies the Mexican individual peasant's thirst for the land, but is terribly unproductive and uncompetitive. So Mexican agriculture has been a disaster for a long, long, long time. NAFTA made some things worse, it did, and some things better. What did it make worse? It made it more difficult for the campesino who continues to grow corn at you know, one or two uh, tons per hectare of yields compete with the American farmer from Nebraska who gets 10 tons per hectare. Okay, yes, that is absolutely true. Also true probably for uh, frijoles, probably true for milk and dairy products, pork, maybe, hard to say, etc. On the other hand, it did allow traditional Mexican highly mechanized, capitalized agriculture to have greater access to the United States. Fruits and vegetables from Sinaloa, other fruits from the, from the tropical lands, mango, pineapple, etc., and some citrus food, fruits from the eastern part of the country. Problem, of course, is that the affected places have a lot more people, whereas the modern, capitalized, competitive, efficient places have fewer people, by definition. And so there was a certain impact of throwing people off the land. But it really is on the margin to begin with because you know, agriculture is 5% of Mexican GDP. It's 17 or 18% of the people of, of Mexico working still in agriculture, but their contribution to Mexican GDP is 5 to 6%. So at most, it's on the margins. To what degree do you believe that this mindset that we have heard of in the past of being uh, a colonial people, meaning that we are subservient to, you know, to those in, authority, uh, uh, in an authority position, um, does it have to do with whether or not we are willing to obey the rules? That's number one. Number two, to the point that you mentioned that we are capable of change as Mexicans, you know, we come to this country and then we seem to address uh, the law and, and obey. Uh, is that an instant, uh, I mean, does that change take place uh, over 
night or is that generational? And if, if and how is that going to be accomplished in, in a Mexican society where we seem to have a systematic problem in that, as you mentioned in the past, you know, the people that are elected and are in power, the ones that uh, represent authority are not going to change on their own. We, how, how, do we, how do we bring that about as, as a people? And by the way, uh, thank you about the comment uh, of the fact that we avoid uh, conflict. I think my marriage is going to be saved by that. Oh, Excellent. At least one useful here. outcome of this book. <laughs> uh, you want me to go one by one? Yeah. Okay. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I believe, without being by any means an authority on the matter, that the conquest really was a foundational moment in Mexico. And this is what makes the country special. Because, you know, I have this discussion with the Brazilians, and the Brazilians are, are strange people. Right now, they think very highly of themselves, and they think, you know, <laughs> they're unbearable. But anyway, normally, they're a lot of fun, and in Mexico, we adore them, and I, in particular, have a lot of Brazilian friends. They, Brazilians, Brazil was not conquered. There was no Spanish and then Portuguese conquest of Brazil because there was nothing to conquer. There were some indigenous people living there and they were just wiped out, period. They were just killed, end of story. And then they brought slaves and stuff to do the work. But there was no conquest of a structured, sedentary, organized civilization in Brazil because there was no such thing. Same is true, by the way, in Argentina and Uruguay, to a lesser extent in Chile. In Mexico, there was. There was a conquest. And this is not a nice thing. It, it does something to you when you're conquered. And when the conquest is not just an occupation like that of France by the Nazis for four years in the 40s, which was not very nice either, by the way, but after, at the end of the day, it lasted four years. This lasted 400 years. And so a conquest does things to you, and it does a stout, it, it becomes a foundational moment that reproduces itself. It's not an essence. It's not something ontological. It's the product of a historical process, and the process can come to an end at some point, and a new process can take over. It's not something, it's not destiny. But it is a foundational moment, and I've always thought that this is extraordinarily important um, in, in, in Mexico and, and will be for a long time. Does the change happen overnight? Of course, no, it doesn't. And, uh, and I'm sure that people, friends of mine who have talked about this before writing it, who have objected to this notion about Mexican women in the United States and Mexicans in general in the United States, tell me, look, don't, don't take it too literally. One thing is the way recently arrived Mexicans in the United States behave and think and act and live and love in public spaces, at work, in school, etc. And a totally different way is the way they behave at home, at home here, and in the barrio, and in the bar, and in the whatever, cantina, or whatever it is. They revert very quickly, my friends tell me, to the way they are in Mexico that yes, there is a change, but the change is only hacia afuera, because it's an imposed change by the need to conform with American norms, standards, laws, rules, etc. I, I don't know. I think a lot more research has to be done into this. My impression is that it is real change and that it is lasting change, but it's certainly not overnight. 
unfortunately, by the way. Uh, I'm of the opinion that the world economy, the depression we're going through, basically, I kind of consider a depression as opposed to a recession. It's a worldwide kind of a uh, problem, and the 300 million migrants that are basically all over the world, whether they're in Germany or London or Paris or the United States, are kind of keeping us afloat at a recession level or, de or near depression level and not really seriously. So I just kind of wanted maybe your take on uh, what we can do to try to help, uh, I guess, alleviate the pain that the immigrant, immigrant is basically facing for our own economic, I guess, faults or deficiencies. Uh, so I, I think the, the immigrant has a lot to offer this country, but gets no credit for keeping us afloat. And I don't think we're going to get out of this recession, depression, for the next 10, 15, 20 years. The immigrants, the Mexican and Central American, to a lesser extent South American, immigrants' contribution to U.S. welfare, to U.S. economy, to the U.S. standard of living is generally underestimated, is not um, valued at what it really brings to the United States, let alone the cultural aspects, which, okay, that one can argue, but the other part, really not arguable. What can be done to increase this? I, you know, I, keep, I still think that the only way to change the immigrants or the migrants' situation in the United States is through uh, whatever you want to call it, comprehensive immigration reform or an immigration agreement with Mexico and Central America or whatever you want to call it. As long as you have 12 million people living illegally, they have no rights, they can't be acknowledged as regular people, and they will not be able to, their contribution to U.S. economy will not be considered and taken into account. And as long as you don't legalize the future flow through some form of migratory worker programs, you will then, if you don't do that, then you will continue to, re you, will, you will rebuild the illegal universe the next day, the day after amnesty, you will have a thousand Mexicans jumping over the fence and coming here who will be as illegal as the 12 million Mexicans and Central and South Americans are today. So if that's not done, everything else I think is needless or useless. Uh, I, yes, I can see how it'd be good if people in the United States, without reform, at least acknowledge the contribution immigrants make but frankly, I don't think that's going to do immigrants any good. They don't want acknowledgement. They want rights. Then they're right. What's the reality of racism in Mexico, and what type of an impact has it had on the Mexican psyche throughout history, up until today? The Mexican fear and rejection of the alien, the foreigner, the lo externo, lo ajeno, um, is generally addressed at the United States, but can also be addressed at El Indio, and Mexican mestizos and Mexican Europeans or whites or Caucasians or whatever you want to call them, um, are incredibly racist and have been systematically adopted racist stances in regard to the indigenous uh, peoples of the country. Now, the issue going beyond that, which is, I think, a factual statement and cannot be terribly uh, disputed, the fact beyond that is that today, as opposed to the situation 50 or 60 or 100 years ago even, Mexico is overwhelmingly a mestizo country, which it was not even 100 years ago. We have this notion that 
We were a mestizo nation almost the day after Cortes landed and started, you know, hooked up with La Malinche. And all of a sudden, we had a whole big population of mestizos. Well, problem. Uh, there really weren't enough Spaniards, Spanish males, to go round. I mean, you know, it, it didn't work. There were enough uh, Mexican or indigenous women, but there certainly were not enough Spanish men. It took 400 years, more or less. We now have information that's a little more reliable for when Mexico actually became a mestizo nation. And this was not before the 1910s or 1920s. But today, it really is overwhelmingly mestizo. There are very few people like myself, and there are very few people who are, strictly speaking, indígenas. Five, six percent of the population. It was eight, 15 years ago when the Zapatista rebellion. And if the trends that were present then continued over the last now 17 years, there's every reason to believe we're down to four, five, six percent. And within another 20 years, there probably will be no more indigenous peoples in Mexico in the strict sense of the word. And so, in a sense, there will be no direct, explicit but of racism left. You will still have the racism of the white versus the mestizo. But it's the racism of a very small minority against a huge majority, which really is unpleasant, especially offensive for those who believe that these things are, should not exist. But at the end of the day, it's not that big a deal because that form of racism, as I say, is the racism of a tiny, small number against an enormous majority, which, you know, finally is not that big a deal. And the other kind is disappearing. Maybe, not, it's, maybe it's not a good thing, but, you know, we, I, I go into this a lot. I think about it back and forth. What in the world do we do with the communities in the Altos of Chiapas, for example, or in Oaxaca? Oaxaca is a state has 500 municipios, 500 counties. Mexico has 2,500 municipios, or counties. 500 of them are in Oaxaca, the state of Oaxaca. It is one of the two states that has an indigenous majority. The other is Chiapas. They are literally sprinkled all over the highlands and the sierras of Oaxaca. If you were to spread out Oaxaca, it would be the size of Mexico, of the whole country. It's a fantastic state. It's, the city is beautiful, the state is beautiful, the people are fantastic. But what in the world do you do with those 500 municipios? Are, you, are we really going to fork up the money, the rest of us, the other 112 million Mexicans? Are we going to fork up the money to give electric power to the little communities of 50 people in the Sierra, water, schools, hospitals, education. Are we going to do that? Are we going to pay for that? We're not. Maybe we should. Maybe we, you know, if we were a rich country, I, I'm one of the few people in the world, and certainly in Mexico, who like the French. <laughs> I mean, I'm a Francophile. I really am. And I think the French are great in the sense that they decided 50 years ago that they were going to pay with their taxes 
to conserve their little country villages, the guy with the beret and the baguette and the cheese and the, all the stuff and the calvados in the morning and all this stuff. Okay, fine. I think that's a good investment for a rich country like France. I don't think we can do it in Mexico. We don't have the money and we don't have the solidarity and we don't have that much pride in our culture like the French do. We say we do, but we don't really. We never put our money where our mouth is. And so we're not gonna pay to keep these communities alive. So at the end of the day, what we gotta do with the people in the 500 municipios of Oaxaca is haul them off the mountains and bring them to Oaxaca and bring them to Mexico City and bring them to Los Angeles. We do have uh, airports in Montevideo, but it's true, we always suffer because of the Argentinians. So just to clarify that. No, my question is, if you can expand a little bit about, uh, um, about equality and individualism and how that plays in... Mexico's um, character. I, I had the opportunity to study a little bit um, racism, and particularly we were trying to apply symbolic racism to Latinos in the U.S. It's symbolic racism is based in the Protestant ethic and the, a lot of the values code related to individualism. And definitely the Latinos that we study really were off the scale with equality. Their value for equality was so different to the rest and to, to the American traditional Anglo-Saxon uh, Protestant um, ethic. And so I, I'm confused when you talk about the individualism of Mexico and this value of equality that I had noticed and how that do you think plays out and if you can expand a little bit on that. If you look at Mexican attitudes, to, attitudes towards inequality and equality beyond um, the rhetoric uh, Mexico tends to have a high degree of tolerance for outrageous inequality, which you would probably not have elsewhere. Uh, it's not just slim. I mean, I, I, I use him as a foil, but, but it really is. But the gap, the visible gap between the ostentatious wealth of the Mexican wealthy and the destitute nature of a still significant part of the Mexican population, maybe 15, 20% in extreme poverty, 40% in poverty. That gap you don't see as visibly elsewhere. It may exist in other places. Brazil is probably a more unequal country than Mexico is, but you don't see it as, as clearly as you'd see in Mexico. I mean, ever since Humboldt went in 1810, uh, every foreigner has been amazed by the visibility, the uh, stridency, the flagrance of Mexican inequality. Um, and we accept it, because if we didn't, we would do something about it. And we really have never done a whole lot about it ever. Even the revolution was much more about other things and certainly did not contribute in any way to reducing inequality in Mexico. If anything, it made it worse. Does that have to do with the question of individualism? Well, it does in a way because, and we, you know, we have polls that say this very clearly, Mexicans were thinking of themselves, their individualism as a family, think that I don't care whether what I do or what I want is good for the country or not, if it's good for me. And they say so. I mean, it's not something that people attribute to Mexicans. We have polls where we ask people and they say so, openly. 
if you have that kind of an attitude, it's kind of difficult to, for example, have public policies that reduce inequality. We know more or less what policies are helpful in reducing inequality, but they all imply sacrifices on the part of some people, and Mexicans don't want to sacrifice. But it's not just the rich that don't want to. Nobody in Mexico does. We don't like to pay taxes. Nobody does anywhere, granted, but we're especially <laughs> bad at it. Nobody does. Uh, we don't like to, we're, there's zero philanthropy in Mexico. We have fewer uh, um, organizations or institutions with a tax deductible, tax exempt nature than every Latin American country. I mean, these are, these are numbers, these, this is data, it's not opinions. Uh, Mexicans do not, con the philanthropy does not exist in Mexico. It's just not there. So, that's where the individualism clashes, not with equality, but with the Mexican acceptance of inequality. It complements it. My question is, you talk very casually about so many Mexican immigrants in this country and so on. If, and, and, and we all know that they come for jobs and because of the lack of opportunity in Mexico. Now, if we said the same thing about Americans going to Mexico or another country, people would be very upset because America would lose its sense of, of um, exceptionalism and national pride and so on. Now, I know, I know that you served as foreign minister for, for Mexico for a while. What's it like being foreign minister in that kind of situation? And and what, what's Mexicans' general feelings on, on being in that situation? Do, do you understand what I mean? In other words, of, of uh, being foreign minister of a country that has one-tenth of its population living abroad. Right. If Mexico were the only country in the world that has a large part of its population living abroad, um, I would have to ask myself the question when either I was foreign minister or just a uh, regular Mexican citizen, why are we in such an exceptional situation that we are the only ones unable to find decent jobs for our people? If I know that in, I'm in the company of probably over the last couple of centuries, almost every country in the world with the exception of five or six that were immigrant countries as opposed to emigrant countries, I say to myself, well, probably the same reasons that led the Irish and the Spanish and the Poles and the Jews and everybody else, the Chinese, the Indians, everybody to emigrate, have led the Mexicans to emigrate. Why? It's not so much because their country can't give them a decent job, it's because they can get a better job somewhere else. And if it just so happens that you don't have to cross the ocean, to get there, but just the river or the tunnel or the fence, <laughs> frankly, uh, it's not a bad deal. <laughs> I mean, and so I, quite honestly, I, I have never felt this notion that we should in Mexico either be ashamed or embarrassed or offended or humiliated by the fact that yes, we have a lot of people who leave. As a matter of fact, if there hadn't been so many other places in the world who had gone through the same experience, uh, you would not exist. <laughs> so, you know, I feel we're in good company. And, uh, and I'm grateful for that.
I, I was wondering, what is what do you see your role or the role of Mr. Castañedas? Um, I, by that I mean the the uh, people like you that have been privileged to leave Mexico and come to either uh, the United States to study or to Europe. And um, what do you see your role as to building the character of, uh, of the Mexican nation? You know, I, I think people like myself, and there are, there are many of us in Mexico, because over the last 50 or so years, um, Mex the Mexican bureaucracy, the Mexican elites, have found a way both with government money, which was not my case, or private money, which was partly my case, to send people abroad to study, to live, to work, come back, come and go. I think we have an obligation, one, to give back what we can, which I try to do as much as I can. Sometimes I do more, sometimes I do less. Sometimes I do it with a great deal of enthusiasm, sometimes with a great deal of frustration and disappointment. I mean, it's, it's not simple to do all of this stuff because uh, uh, change in Mexico is very slow. It's a terribly frustrating country, especially when you're in a position of power and you think you can really do things and it turns out that you can do very little. And so it can be terribly frustrating. But I think first we have an obligation to maintain a tie with the country, which in my case means living there most of the time. Uh, you know, I could, I, I try to compare myself, and I'll end with this, with what used to be the case of most of my compatriots in the United States. That is to say, we would come here and work here for half the year and go home and rest the rest of the year. <laughs> Take it easy. Because with what we make or made four or five months here, we could basically hang out the rest of the year in Mexico. Whether you were an albañil or a nuclear physicist or a writer or whatever, that is the wage differential, and it works. When circularity came to an end and Mexicans began to find it much more difficult to go, come and go, um, most of the people who used to come and go stayed in the United States because it became way too dangerous and way too expensive to keep risking the crossing every year uh, and paying the pollero and doing all of that. In the case of those of us who can come and go, I think we should come and go. Um, I could you know, stay in New York for the rest of the year and have, have NYU pay me two or three times the salary they pay me now and work less because that's the way universities are. The more they pay you, <laughs> the less you gotta work and that's good. But I don't want to. I mean, I spend eight months of the year in Mexico because I want to and because I can and because I think there's things that we should do there. How to change the national character, if I knew, believe me, I wouldn't be writing books about it. I'd be doing it. But what I can do is write books about it, and I hope you like this one. Thank you all very, very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you very, very much.